Get ready to rumble. Shilling Show Unleashed on the Seven Thunders Media Network. Former city councilor, husband, father, and community watchdog. Your host, Rob Schilling. Welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes J. Michael Waller, Senior Analyst for Strategy at the Center for Security Policy, a former CIA employee, author of the new book, Big Intel, how the CIA and FBI went from Cold War heroes to deep state villains. And Mike Waller, thank you for joining us today on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Oh, it's nice to be with you. I would like to talk a little bit about the genesis of these organizations we're discussing today, because a lot of people never looked back into history and how they came about and what purpose they were to serve. Well, it started out, the FBI started as a small bureau. It wasn't even a federal bureau at the Justice Department, and it was there to fight uh, certain types of interstate crime but they really weren't too careful about who they hired. So a young uh, Justice Department lawyer named John Edgar Hoover took over, purged it of, 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 of a fourth of its special agents, and created what ultimately became the FBI. He started it out to fight uh, foreign militants who came to this country to spread communism, anarchism, radical socialism, and to overthrow our Constitution. So that's how that began. It fought gangsters later on. So how about the CIA? There's a different history there. Very different history there. We didn't have a foreign intelligence service until uh, just on the eve of World War II. And it was the British who urged us to get one. So this was before Pearl Harbor. And uh, it was called the Office of Strategic Services. And that, that lasted only for the duration of the war. And then a couple of years went by, and then the CIA was created as, as our central intelligence agency, as a standing peacetime agency to waged the Cold War by containing Soviet communism. Let's talk about how and why you became involved, because you did have personal involvement with the CIA, and it's always fascinating to me how people become involved and work with these agencies. So tell us just a little bit about what you did. Oh, sure. It's, well, it started out when I was in high school. As a 15-year-old kid, I got involved in the anti-nuclear energy movement, and I did it because I was purely concerned about the environment. And then once I got in and they put me in some professional trainers come in and they said, look, kid, this is all about overthrowing American capitalism. I wasn't in for that. So I got out really quickly and then decided, well, now I know what it's like to be duped. Uh, I'm going to fight these guys. And so I've done it ever since. Well, that was in the 1970s and uh, Reagan became president when I was a freshman in college. And I wanted to get involved in his whole strategy to fight communism. And uh, his CIA director, Bill Casey had been in the OSS during World War II, did some real heroic stuff during World War II to pave the way for the D-Day invaders to go march from Normandy up to Berlin and take Berlin and end the war. And he, uh, he parachuted teams in behind enemy lines to pave the way for, the, for our troops and the British and Australians and Canadians to come up and, and uh, take over what was left of the Third Reich. So I thought, what a neat opportunity it would be to serve under a man like this with Ronald Reagan. And one thing led to another. And still as a college student, 
I uh, became not an employee of the CIA, but I was working for CIA Director Casey down in Central America. It's interesting to look, and as we examine the title of your book and we think about Cold War Heroes of Deep State Villains, I think there's a whole generation and perhaps people that will be listening to this podcast who never knew these as lauded agencies, but only have become aware of their criticism. So tell us about the glory days and how these agencies and organizations were perceived by the American public. It's easy to romanticize glory days. So if we just keep in context that these are organizations run by people Mm -hmm. and all people have their flaws and all people, if they have enough power, it's just a human tendency to push as far as you can. So even under the best circumstances, you're going to abuse power if there aren't guardrails up. And then there are presidents who are going to manipulate them for whatever ends to, for better or for worse. If we consider that and that there were mistakes, these were honorable men who had America's interests first, by and large. So, so you had Hoover going after foreigners who came here to overthrow our way of life, to subvert it, to overthrow it, but also as Hoover was warning, and this was a, a neat thing in researching big intel, I went and read Hoover's testimony before Congress, his speeches, his articles, his books, and found the man, since, since 1920, he was warning the country against communist subversion of all aspects of our society, of our schools, our universities, our churches, our news organizations, Hollywood, you name it, our government, high and low. He was warning about this the whole time and saying, if we're not vigilant as Americans, we're going to lose our country and we're going to lose our culture. So he wasn't, as FBI director, he wasn't just looking at enforcing laws because there weren't that many federal laws early on. He was looking at saving the American way of life from being subverted by these foreign elements coming into wreck it. How did he know? How was he so sure? Because he's certainly been proven a hundred percent correct in the years since he's passed. So what was it that he got onto that led him to that conclusion? Well, it's funny. I was looking at the Gallup polls, even in the 1950s. Imagine he was director of the FBI for 48 years. Wow. Yeah. So when you're a director of a government agency for 48 years, you're going to do a lot of really wonderful things and you're going to make a lot of colossal mistakes and you're going to abuse the power that's in your head. It's just normal. And but so, so he was looking at the Gallup polls in the 1950s and, and 60s. He was one of the most popular men in America. He had a two thirds to three fourths of the American public viewed him favorably. It was really astonishing. Yeah. So, so he got his start early on as a, uh, as a young Justice Department lawyer. He registered for the draft during World War I to deploy to Europe. But instead, he spent his wartime service in the Justice Department defending us inside the country. And this is where he, he headed up a unit in the uh, Justice Department called the Radical Division. And that job was to identify foreign communists, Marxists, anarchists, and so forth who were here to to agitate and overthrow our government. So he identified them, rounded them up, and then had them shipped back to Russia. And in doing that, he studied what they wrote, what they talked about, what they believed in, and what their end goals were, and and the pledges that they took. And uh, with the brand new Soviet Union devoted to spreading Marxism-Leninism around the world, that meant a dictatorship of the proletariat. That meant a dictatorship in the United States. So that was to overthrow our constitution. So everybody who signed on to the communist oath and everyone who believed in Marxism 
by definition, believed in overthrowing our Constitution. So that's how he got involved in learning about this threat and doing something about it. Over the years, Mike, there have been many attacks, and I think if you ask most people who are aware of who J. Edgar Hoover is today, they would uh, paint him in a poor light, attacks on his character and his reputation. I'd love for you to address that. Yeah, we all, that's sort of all we know. We think of J. Edgar Hoover, and we think, well, what a bad guy. He was really out of control, wasn't he? But if you look, he didn't have many laws constraining what he could do. But he didn't need SWAT teams. He didn't have any SWAT teams. He didn't have any tactical units. And if you look at, despite the abuses that took place, he was far more restrained than the FBI is today. So that's very interesting, the change in the culture, and yet he seemingly was much more effective. I don't hear of any communists being deported today. In fact, there are probably plenty of communists in the FBI. How did, how did we change over this course of time? Well, that's what big intel is about, because I sought first to look at what has happened to the FBI and the CIA today that made them so woke. And then that meant how did they embrace critical theory, critical race theory, critical law theory, all these other Marxist, cultural Marxist theories that go back to the early 1840s. And then that the Soviets began as an active measures operation against the West. How did it all start? And that's when I discovered this chain of custody. So in, in big intel, I trace the ideological chain of custody from a meeting in Moscow in 1932 with the founder of what became the KGB, Felix Jasinski, and then the ideological chain of custody for a, for a strategy to destroy Western culture from within with what became critical theory or what Marx, Marxists, early Marxists called cultural Marxism. So it wasn't the Marxism of the working masses of people against the rich bourgeoisie and, and so the rich overthrow, you know, and the rich get overthrown and all the property is redistributed. It was Marx, the cultural warrior. So that meant destroy your faith in your country, in your culture, in your heritage, in your religious beliefs, in your churches, in the whole ethics behind it, which meant Judeo-Christian ethics, which meant the Greco-Roman principles of, of democratic republics, which was a movement that, you know, that we started in America, but it was already existing in Europe and was, was growing in Europe. And then to pit family members against one another, spouses against one another, children against their parents, children against one another, and then throw away all the values that are good in society. So that's what cultural Marxism is, and that's what critical theory is, is the uh, engine of that. And critical theory is simply you criticize everything about your culture and society for the sake of destroying it, not for making it better. That's how we have all this, this extreme groups harping and harping about everything that's good about our society and everything that's good about our history. And now, you know, we're, we're suddenly founded by racists who have no redeeming values. That means our founders were, were, were evil men and, oh, they were men. So they were therefore patriarchal and that's repressive. And that, that means the whole American system is repressive and we have to change the whole thing and fundamentally transform everything. And then you, you drill down further. Religion is repressive because it represses our, our desires. Family is oppressive because it's generally patriarchal. So the fathers are, are repressive and, and so on and so forth. So you just destroy all of this for the sake of destroying it and not necessarily having something improving anything except for the organized radical cultural Marxists to take over. So that's what Hoover was, was warning about. That's what 
these individuals who came from this Moscow meeting set up this this uh, entity in Germany called the Frankfurt School in Frankfurt, Germany, to develop this as an ideology. And then what happens? We nice, naive Americans bring them in and shelter them so they won't be persecuted by Hitler. And they end up starting schools in America to spread this through the law schools, through the teachers' colleges and everywhere else. And so here we are today. Is there a counterpart? I mean, thinking of this going back uh, so far, so many decades, is there a counterpart on the right? Was there ever any any counter movement against the cultural Marxists? Not really. I mean, it was it was sort of more of a reaction to it by by people trying to conserve what they had. Mm-hmm. So you you know, churches were fighting back, uh, uh, political figures were fighting back, and it wasn't just uh, Republicans or conservative Republicans. It was a lot of Democrats too. President Eisenhower, who was really moderate Republican. He had ways to to combat this, although he really didn't quite understand it. So you had this over time, but it's like it's like a trickle effect. If you notice some decay, some some something's rotten, the sill in your house is rotten, or you've got rust on your car, and you really don't pay much attention to it first, and then before you know it, things are so rotten that it's either very expensive to replace or everything has to be demolished and and rebuilt. And that's kind of what happened to us as a country. We saw it coming. A lot of people were calling it out, but a lot of those people were then branded as racist, bigots, uh, oppressors, uh, you know, sexists, whatever other ists that, that sounded terrible. And they were just hammered away for years to the point where they were marginalized. The goodness of what they were trying to do was obscured by a lot of screaming uh, radicals saying that, you know, help, help, I'm being repressed. You mentioned this uh, subversion of all the various institutions, Mike, and uh, what I want to talk about is the government schools. Right here in Central Virginia, we have a superintendent who has publicly stated that the Constitution and the Declaration, our foundational documents, are fundamentally racist. Now, when a superintendent of a school division makes that statement and he's not challenged uh, by anybody internally, uh, that's what goes out to all the students in this uh, big school district. So how do we combat this happening at the lowest levels. I mean, these kids are going to grow up believing a lot of this. Sure. I'm in my early 60s now, and I was raised in high school to think that our Constitution is a living document. Mm. So not that the founders were evil, but it's a living document. So there are no real firm principles attached to it. It can really mean whatever you want it to mean. So therefore, it's meaningless. So then, of course, the next logical step a couple generations later is our founders were evil. So then what happens? The thing that a parent would do is you go to the school board meeting and you complain about the superintendent and then they get intransions up there on the, on the dais and they will lie and they will obfuscate and the parents will get upset. And then somebody calls the FBI. What does the FBI do? It goes after the parents who are defending their kids from the government employees who are trying to brainwash the kids to hate their country. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast continues in a moment. Our guest is J. Michael Waller. Get your fix online at shillingshow.com. Shillingshowmedia.com is your one-stop shop for websites, audio and video production, and photography. Shillingshowmedia.com will take your project from conception to completion. Shillingshowmedia.com is reasonably priced and highly professional. Need a website for your business? Visit shillingshowmedia.com. Need a video created or edited? Visit shillingshowmedia.com. 
have a photography or graphic design project, visit shillingshowmedia.com. Shillingshowmedia.com is your one-stop shop for websites, audio and video production, and photography. Visit shillingshowmedia.com. That's shillingshowmedia.com. Get your fix. Shilling Show Unleashed. We continue on the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. The book is Big Intel, How the CIA and FBI Went from Cold War Heroes to Deep State Villains. Author J. Michael Waller joins us. Mike, I'd like to talk about the uh, function of the G-Men versus the gangsters. That was quite a time in America, and you spent some time in the book on that. The G-Men, that, that was um, the government men, back when it wasn't a scary term. It was a heroic term. The country is being uh, terrorized by organized crime as a result of mostly of prohibition. Now, parallel to the FBI, Federal Bureau of Investigation, there was a prohibition bureau, and the prohibition bureau was had special agents to fight laws, to fight alcohol smugglers and so forth, bootleggers. So the FBI didn't go after the prohibition violators because that was a whole different government unit. So you can see the, the system was being set up where there was no single government agency that was too powerful the guys who had the guns, but you had these interstate gangsters and organized criminals and organized crime taking over cities and murdering people and so forth. So this is where the FBI became really famous and heroic in the eyes of, of most of our countrymen by fighting these gangsters. But to get that, that name and that cachet, what uh, Hoover went to Hollywood, he saw that Hollywood was being penetrated by communists who were injecting themes subtly into entertainment into the movies and into music. So he thought, well, we have to do something similar. So he went to Hollywood too, and there were a whole lot of movies put out to show the, the great exploits of the FBI and the G-Men. And there were comic books and there were, you know, ultimately a TV show. This was in the thirties, but in the 1960s, you know, there was a TV show, a weekly called the FBI. And, and actually the FBI leadership would vet every episode before it went out. And so there was, that created a sort of romantic, exciting, cleaner than clean image of the FBI, which is what Hoover wanted. But it gave us the brand of the FBI that, could, that was out there to protect all of us. It was out there to do the right thing. It was for law and order. And, and the whole superhero theme kind of emerged from this, you know, with Captain America and Superman and everybody standing up for what's right. This was all coming out of a very optimistic time. When, when the United States was up against great adversity. You had the roaring 20s when things were good, and then the Depression when things were bad, but there was still this optimism. And Hoover brought a sense of danger and a sense that we all have to be vigilant, but the G-men would be out there to make things right. Speaking of Hoover, you have a section of the book about Hoover and the Kennedys. I recently interviewed RFK Jr., and of course you've heard his public statements about his thoughts on the CIA and uh, the murder of his father and his uncle. So tell us yeah. about the relationship between Hoover and the Kennedys and what you think about the, the theory being floated by RFK Jr. It was a, an unpleasant relationship that they had. Hoover had been in there already for 40 years when John F. Kennedy was president. Hoover had been heading the FBI for almost 40 years. So he was entrenched. He did spy on politicians, on elected officials. He kept files on everybody. Uh, there was no effective law against this. He just did it because he wanted to make sure the country was not taken over by subversives, first of all. And second, he did it to keep the FBI 
first and foremost, so that no politician could ever defeat it. And this was where the danger came up. He started doing this in, in the administration of President Warren Harding right after World War I. Warren Harding wanted him to spy on Harding's political adversaries in Congress. So the FBI had an early history of doing this. The next president did not. President Franklin Roosevelt loved, loved it, wanted Hoover to spy, not only on his um, rivals, but on his friends. And then he loved to hear the stories. And this got into the real prurient spying so that, you know, Hoover, uh, uh, Roosevelt sort of kind of got his kicks from hearing about you know, the sexual exploits or perversions or whatever else of, of other politicians. And Hoover would provide that to him. Truman and Eisenhower wanted nothing to do with it, but the Kennedys did. And they hated him. They feared him. But they needed him. And he needed them if he was going to stay FBI director because he was aging out. So there, there was a limit to how old you could be as a federal employee, and it was he was facing mandatory retirement. So they had a, a sort of a, a deal between them, but it was Bobby Kennedy, the attorney general, so the father of RFK Jr., obviously, was concerned that the communists were infiltrating the civil rights movement, which they had been. Mm-hmm. Bobby Kennedy was, because the Kennedys were very anti-communist, and their father was very anti-communist. And Bobby Kennedy's first job in Washington was working for Senator Joe McCarthy. And the Kennedys were so close to the McCarthys that one of the daughters, a Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, who became governor of Virginia, her godfather was Senator Joe McCarthy. Even though he was a conservative Republican and, uh, and the Kennedys were liberal Democrats, they were all Catholic politicians at a time when it was tough to be a Catholic politician. There was a lot of suspicion. So, well, what does this mean? You know, that's a whole other angle. But you have, a, you have an ideological affinity between the Kennedys and the real anti-communists like Joe McCarthy and like J. Edgar Hoover. You know, the Kennedys led a, led a lifestyle that led them to uh, possible manipulation by foreign powers, given their, their sort of extracurricular, uh, more scandalous type activity. So Hoover would spy on them, uh, mainly because imagine if you're a United States senator like John Kennedy, and then you're becoming president. What if you had habits for which you could be blackmailed that the Soviets knew and could hold that over your head? Mm-hmm. So Hoover wanted to watch against that, but he also wanted to safeguard the safety of the FBI because he was just he was married to the FBI. Well, then President Kennedy's assassinated in 1963. And then his brother, Bobby Kennedy, then the attorney general and then became U.S. senator in New York, running for president in 68. And he's also assassinated. We still don't have all the answers to who was behind the assassinations and why. Certain members of the Kennedy family and a lot of other Americans believe that the FBI or the CIA was somehow involved there. For me, if you look at Lee Harvey Oswald, a U.S. Marine who had declared himself a communist, who went to Mexico to defect to the Soviet Union at the Soviet embassy, the Soviets let him marry a Soviet wife and do target practice, rifle practice in the USSR, and then let him come back to the United States where he becomes an activist in support of Fidel Castro. And then people say that the FBI assassinated Kennedy. I don't see where that computes. Other people do. But the fact is, more than 60 years later, the federal government still won't release all the archives concerning the Kennedy assassination. And you have to ask why. There are reasons legitimate ones to keep secrets to protect sources and to protect the methods of gaining information. That's all understandable. But after 60 years, all those sources have died 
and the methods are obsolete. So there's no reason to keep anything secret unless you're trying to hide something. I'd like to talk about and fast forward to 9-11 and you talk about the Patriot Act and how things changed. I think a lot of people are ignorant of these changes because maybe they've lived with them for so long, but maybe you could tell us about them. The Patriot Act has become such a part of our lives and everything to do with it that it's often hard to, for those old enough to remember, it's hard to remember what it was like before. But we weren't, as citizens, we weren't all treated like terrorist suspects before. And now we are. So every time we go to the airport, we go through an electronic strip search. We have driver's licenses with our biometric data encoded in barcode on the back with our height and our weight and, and a whole lot more in there that, that, okay, what purpose does that serve? But especially when we're always getting our driver's license scanned for a whole lot of other things. So there are these big databases built up on us with all our private information on it. And we have no idea who's looking at it and why and who's, who's abusing it. None of this existed before nine 11. And it's all in the name of keeping us safe, safe from what? But then you put yourselves in the shoes of President George W. Bush, 9-11 hits. He's a brand new president. Most of his, the appointees running the government are Clinton holdovers. So he only has a few of his own people in the national security positions. He turns right after the terrorist attacks to his brand new FBI director, Robert Mueller, who was only on the job for a week, and looks at him and says, you are going to make sure that no other American is ever harmed by terrorists in this country again. Well, that just changed the whole role of the FBI from being an investigative and law enforcement and counterintelligence agency to a a creepy pre-crime agency to start looking for people before they commit a crime, even though that has, you know, that's, that's not constitutional, right? It's not the way the founders were, were intending for us to be. You're innocent until proven guilty. On the one hand, it's necessary to get jihadists who are out to, to fight us. But because it was to look at terrorists before they attack, what happens when you get rid of the jihadists? The bureaucracy, by nature, is you use it or lose it, right, with the annual budget. If you don't spend your money and justify your purpose, Congress will cut your budget. So they, they're they always looking for enemies. So you have this as a natural bureaucratic impulse. Now you have laws that empower the government apparatus to go after the American citizen and monitor them and force the private sector to provide steady streams of intelligence about each one of us in the name of patriotism, the Patriot Act. And it was named that way because to to push it through Congress, if you voted against this, you are not a patriot. And the Patriot Act was only, it was such a dangerous law and the founders, the congressman who passed the law and and President Bush realized that it's such a dangerous law, but our circumstances are so extraordinary after 9-11 that let's make it so the law expires after a few years. It's that dangerous. If it was to be a permanent law, you'd have a permanent police state system building up within the government. But what Congress did and what successive presidents did was they extended the Patriot Act. They kept renewing the Patriot Act and they kept renewing and strengthening sections of the Patriot Act that were flagrantly being violated by the FBI and by other elements of the intelligence community. And then on top of that, you have the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, which consolidated all these other different agencies. So the Secret Service was part of the Treasury Department and you know other 
other agencies were either independent or under a different uh, cabinet department. So, and it was structured that way so that no government agency could become so powerful that it could threaten the country. So you have that. And then you have a, the centralization of the FBI, which Hoover had designed it. So he was a strong director, but he did not initiate the cases from Washington and say, go investigate so-and-so. It was the field offices, 56 of them around the country now, they would initiate the cases and then report upward instead of what was then created to have it report downward. So you have a centralized apparatus now in the FBI. And finally, the 17 different intelligence services of our country, which were all separate from one another, became merged at the top with the director of national intelligence position. The intent was to make sure that we didn't drop the ball. If one government agency detected a terrorist attack, oftentimes it wouldn't report it to other agencies because there was no relationship between the agencies. So this was designed as a coordinator. Well, now you have a giant centralized security apparatus from the top with the laws to give it extraordinary powers. And then who comes in but Barack Obama Mm -hmm. with his agenda to fundamentally transform America. And part of that was fundamentally transforming the FBI and the CIA and the intelligence community. He didn't attack them. This is when the left stopped attacking these institutions because the left was capturing them. They were capturing them from below by being recruited into it. And they were captured from above when Obama put radicals in charge of them to bring up the the junior, sort of the woke, uh, early woke uh, employees who were being recruited in large numbers and elevate them through what? pretext through diversity, equity, and inclusion. So you're putting people without the necessary competence into mid and senior management to become the nervous system, the command and control system of the entire intelligence community. And so this is what we have today. Is there any possibility of saving our national intelligence agencies and organizations? Do we need to abolish them and start over or can they be reformed? Well, they can be re redone. I mean, we need, it's easy for people to say, let's just get rid of the FBI. Let's just defund it. Let's just get rid of the CIA. Well, well then what, you know, we're the number one target of all the bad guys in the world. And we need an intelligence agency to go after our foreign enemies and to inform our leaders about what's happening so they can make coherent decisions. We need the functions that the FBI has, but do we need the CIA as we know it or the FBI as we know it? So after World War II, President Truman abolished the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, because it was a compromised agency. It was set up in an emergency, and it was compromised, and he he didn't see the need for that, but there was a bipartisan effort after World War II to set up a central intelligence agency, and it worked really well, even if it did things that, that certain people didn't like. So the CIA is just a bureaucracy. It's just a brand. Uh, let's just retire the brand and take the bureaucracy and and abolish a lot of positions to get rid of a lot of the really bad elements there and a lot of the functions that the CIA doesn't have. You don't need a secret intelligence service to look at climate change. Right? You don't need a secret intelligence service to gather public information and write reports about it and so many other things. And of the 30-odd thousand CIA employees, only 1,500 of them are actual CIA agents in the field. So, so it's really tiny when you think of it. So let's make it, a, uh, I, I would suggest, uh, break it up into two. You have one for collecting and analyzing intelligence and the other for running covert operations. The FBI is different. It, it has taken on so many functions and had so much mission creep that it's doing things that it need not be doing. 
and really work against us. And it's become too powerful. So there's something that every citizen can do, like all your listeners can do this in this year and every election year. And that is take a serious look at who's running for sheriff in your county. Because sheriffs, and most sheriffs don't even know this, have extraordinary powers. They are the eyes and ears of the FBI and of other federal agencies in their counties. Just like local police departments are the eyes and ears of the FBI in their areas of operation. So the FBI can't work in those areas without the full cooperation of local law enforcement. But the sheriffs, as the elected law enforcement chiefs of their counties, have extraordinary powers. And they can tell the FBI, if you're going to work in my county, you're going to work on my rules, you're going to report to my people, and if you don't like it, I'm going to keep you out of my county. Collier County, Florida has already done this. They've already declared themselves a sanctuary county against federal agents coming in and abusing the population. So this is something that every sheriff candidate should be asked about during the election this year, and that, that the elected sheriffs that should kept, keep their feet to the fire or support them where they're, they're already willing to protect the local population against the political abuses being run, run serially by the FBI. Plus, the FBI steals credit for the cases of the local cops and sheriffs all the time anyway. They'll always send out news releases claiming that they were behind things, but it, it was in, in most of those cases, it was state and local law enforcement. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is, first thing being the sheriffs, the second thing is if you have a president who's elected this fall who has a coherent team to take the FBI and the CIA by the reins and do something about it, if they come in a trusted group, a vetted group, so they can all have, get security clearances, they might have them already, they, they can get Senate confirmation or, or are likely to if they have a Senate-confirmed position. They trust each other and they know what to do and they come in with a standing plan. That plan is already underway, being developed right now, to do what's needed to take away the functions of the FBI and transfer them to other agencies or eliminate those functions completely. And then the FBI is down to a nub and then it can just be retired and become part of our history in favor of something new. Because right now the FBI is, a, is only a brand based on the, the invincible image that J. Edgar Hoover gave it. But it's become to law enforcement what Bud Light has become to peer. J. Michael Waller, if people would like to get a copy of your new book, Big Intel, or if they'd like to follow your work online, tell us how they could do those things. Online, we're at securefreedom.org. On Twitter, I'm at J. Michael Waller. And you can get Big Intel at Costco, and you can also get it anywhere online where books are sold. Mike Waller, you've done a fantastic job in this book of documenting the history and also giving us some hope looking forward. Thank you so much for joining us today on The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. That concludes another edition of The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at shillingshow.com where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time.